From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Her very first book was a finalist for the National Book Award. Now, Kali Fajardo-Anstein is out with her second. Woman of Light is a multi-generational story of Hispano and indigenous women set partly in southern Colorado. When I was in my 20s and I was trying to write this book and I was struggling with different jobs and bad bosses and I was living all over the country, it was extremely difficult to write about Colorado while being in a McDonald's in Key West using the free Wi-Fi. It was just really hard. (laughs) So the land, when I finished the draft in Antonito, I could go out and I could walk every day and look at the sunflowers and look at the old graveyard and I could go talk to somebody at the store and I could hear the sound of the old accent that my elders had that I don't have anymore. Hi, I'm Seth Kent and I donated a van to CPR. All we needed was the title and the keys. It was really great to be able to make a larger donation like that. We're Evergreen members, but at nowhere near that level. Uh, It will take us years to match that, but it feels really great to be able to give a really significant donation to CPR, and it feels like it's put to good use, so that's good too. It is super easy to donate your vehicle at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner at the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax in Denver, here for the launch of an engrossing new novel, Woman of Light is about four generations of Hispano and indigenous women, a prophet, a sharpshooter, a clairvoyant. The author is Kali Fajardo-Anstein, a National Book Award finalist. Like her debut release, Sabrina and Karina, Woman of Light is set both in Denver and Southern Colorado. And while it alternates between the 1860s and 1930s, its themes are thoroughly contemporary, the wealth gap, police brutality, and immigration. And Kali, welcome. Hi, Ryan. Hi. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here with you and everybody who came for the launch. You're kind to have included us. Thank you. I mentioned that there are four generations in this book, but in the earliest pages, even before the table of contents, you make it clear that you are the embodiment of the fifth generation. I wonder how you describe your connection to these characters, first off. Yeah. So these characters are all inspired by my ancestors. Uh, Luce, for example, who is our guide through this big adventure. Luce is based on my own Auntie Lucy, who was my great-grandmother Esther's sister. And when I was growing up, I heard all kinds of stories about their lives, coming up from southern Colorado in the mining camps. I remember being in their homes. My great-grandmother lived over on the edge of Five Points and with my grandpa Alfonso. My Auntie Lucy lived on the west side with my Uncle Abel. And so every character in this book basically has an ancestral mirror from my own family. And they are my family and they are my friends. Like when I was working on this book, it took me over 10 years. Every time I would come to write, it felt like I was visiting my friends and my family and would make me feel really at home and warm. So to be clear, are any of the characters based on family members you never knew? Definitely, definitely, <laughs> definitely yes. so. So uh, you, there was a certain amount of channeling that had to happen here. 
Well, I mean, some people don't believe channeling is real, but I'm not one of those people. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so one of the characters, Maria Josie, uh, she is the matriarch of this entire family in 1933 in Denver. She is a masculine woman. She prefers the company of women herself. She is a lesbian. And she walks north to the city in the 1920s. She's based on my Aunt Mary. And I never met my Aunt Mary, but I heard so many stories of her growing up. I heard about her motorcycle. I heard about her doctor girlfriend. And just hearing those stories, I would have this vivid image of her. And it was like I knew her. This book unfolds really in two places, in Metro Denver and in Southern Colorado. Your protagonist, Luz Lopez, is born in what you call the Lost Territory, the sacred lands of Southern Colorado and Northern New Mexico. And at a young age, Luz and her brother Diego come to live with their aunt in Denver. Their abusive father has abandoned them. Their mother, an alcoholic, simply can't care for them. Luz, and it's fitting that her name should mean light because she is our guide. She has a gift. What is, speaking of channel, what is her gift? Well, Luz, throughout the book, she starts by reading tea leaves. And she's pretty good at reading tea leaves. Sometimes she sees things more than she would like. So the opening of the novel is set at a fairgrounds over by the Platte River. And Luz is reading tea leaves. And she's seeing further into people's lives and their personal lives than they would like to know. But as Luz goes on throughout the story, she actually starts having visions. And these visions are fully immersive, and they're taking over her life in some ways. Um, so there are a lot of sections of this book where you're, you're thrown into the 1860s, you're suddenly in a Wild West show, you're seeing people get attacked by bears, you're meeting sharpshooters, and all of that is coming through Luce's gift. Oh, that strikes me as such a lovely literary device that her clairvoyance could add some continuity in a way to the switching back and forth in time and place. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Have you had your tea leaves read? I've had some things read. I actually have a really interesting story. Um, about 10 years ago, I went with my mother. She's somewhere around here, Renee Fajardo. Hey, mama. Uh, <laughs> I went with my, my mother and my siblings, and we all went to see some psychics in Omaha, Nebraska, where my dad is from. And I told the psychics that I was really worried that I would never, ever be able to publish books. And the woman looked at me and she said, you're going to publish books and they're going to mean a lot to a lot of people. And I just, I thought, okay, well, that doesn't make me feel any better. I'm still really worried it's never going to happen. <laughs> but here I am, so I don't know. Maybe she was right. <laughs> Remind me how old you were when that happened? I was probably uh, 25 and I'm 35 now. So. Okay. Is that someone you can track down? And we like... tried. We, we tried. We were just in Omaha recently and we were looking and like, it's kind of like the shop evaporated. It's like we all as a family just invented it. <laughs> oh, your characters all seem to have gifts. Diego is a snake charmer. And going back a few generations, there's the sharpshooter, Simudicia who has something akin to a circus act. I'm gonna have you read a passage explaining the loss that Simodicia has already experienced in her life. And this passage also sets up a kind of fateful encounter with a man named Pidre. They were nearly out of the fairgrounds when Mickey pointed to his side tent, an oblong bluish womb. Simodicia Salazar Smith, 
Mexican black widow, a shot better than any man. Watch her shoot cards, glass marbles, bottles, clay pigeons, holes through dimes, the flames off candles, and much, much more. Now that's a sad story, Mickey said, stepping toward the bulletin board, running his hand over the dusty boards. She's the one who killed her true love, shot him clean through the head, took off half his face. They couldn't have an open casket, they say. Pedre glanced at the sign and snorted. Still performing after all that? They say she started at 11 years old. It's the only life she knows. Pedre stroked his smooth jawline and looked beyond the bulletin board through an opening in the tent flap. The rounded showground was half the size of the big top and hazy with smoke. There were sounds like songbirds confused by night, forlorn whistles, a sterling gasp. As if pulled inward by an unseen embrace, Pedre guided himself and Mickey into the smallish tent. The crowd was sparse, and the sawdust was clean, smelling of pine. She's the one who shot her true love. Like the irony of a sharpshooter who can shoot the flame off a candle, killing her beloved. Where'd that come from? Well, <laughs> I, I was really interested in Annie Oakley. So um, growing up, obviously, in Denver, the mythology of the Wild West shows is still with us. If you live anywhere near Lookout Mountain, you know that Buffalo Bill's supposed grave is there. But actually, some people say it's up in Wyoming. Um, and so Annie Oakley was always sort of this mythical figure to me. And when I started learning more about her biography, I realized she did some really tricky um, stunts with her husband, including she would shoot cards and things off his head. And I, I was like, wow, you know, what if just something went wrong? It wasn't, and I'm going to tell you, it's not Simodicia's aim that goes wrong. Something happens that makes her miss that shot, something she cannot control. Um, and so I was really curious about Annie Oakley and... I also found out that she had to start becoming a sharpshooter because she didn't have any parents to take care of her and she needed to go hunting after the father died. Um, and she needed to feed the other siblings. And that's just something we don't, that's not part of her mythology is that she learned to shoot so she could hunt and take care of the family. That inclination you have to wonder, what if Annie Oakley had missed? Yeah. Is that inherent in you? I mean, when you were a kid, did you find yourself daydreaming or imagining? Yeah, so my parents actually would say, uh, my first words were, it wasn't a word, I asked, what's it? And, <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to know what other words were, and so I kept asking what things were. Um, and I think that a lot of that curiosity has gotten me into some trouble in my life. Um, always asking, always demanding, and always knowing when things are a little off. Um, adults don't like that in a kid. So, yeah, but it's, it's definitely been a part of me for as long as I've been around. You mentioned your mother's in the audience. Yeah. So I think the rest of the interview is just going to be me and her then. We're just <laughs> plying her for stories. Yeah. No. So Simo Dicia's story unfolds in the late 1800s in southern Colorado. And the book follows subsequent generations, as you've said, who come to Denver. Let's go back to Luz Lopez, who at first works in a laundry that's located just two blocks from where we're sitting, at York and Colfax. What is Denver like in the early 1930s 
for a young woman of color. And how do you step into her shoes as a writer? Well, a lot of this was done through research, both in terms of talking to my elders. Uh, my godmother, Joanna Lucero, is also here. I would ask her questions. She would tell stories, and I would record her talking to my grandfather, who's here. The whole family is here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the things, too, it, it was sort of trusting my intuition. So I remember being in a Colorado history class when I was in college at Metro State. And we were talking about the KKK. And when I grew up, I had heard stories about how the Klan terrorized my ancestors. But in this class, the professor announced to everybody that the Klan was not a hate group, but a social organization, and really tried to downplay what the Klan was. And I remember, you know, everybody in that classroom was just appalled. I mean, Metro is a Hispanic-serving institution. Most of us were Latino. There were students from all different backgrounds, black students, Asian students, queer students, Catholic students, everybody. We would not be allowed in that social organization, so to speak. And that really felt so wrong. And when I started doing more research, I came across that kind of language again and again. So that's actually how I would get into the shoes of these characters. I would think about the injustice that I had heard about in my own life, and I would go hunting and think about, well, what was it really like in the 1930s? Luce's life is really controlled by the restrictions placed upon her by the powers that be, and unfortunately, most of them are racist. And this gets into the economic divide, did you intend to write a book that felt so darn contemporary? Because I kept thinking as I read this, boy, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I didn't because I started this over 10 years ago and I had the first idea for it when I was a teenager. So I didn't plan to write a contemporary book in 2022 when I was a 15-year-old girl. Um, you know, that psychic thing, maybe I did. <laughs> <laughs> but as I was researching, so I finished this book, the, the first draft of it, um, in the summer of 2020. And in the summer of 2020, America is going through this racial reckoning. I'm living right downtown. I'm looking out my window. I'm seeing protests. But I'm also seeing counter-protests from right-wing militias. They have guns. And I'm suddenly realizing that the stories that my ancestors told me look a lot like what I'm looking outside of my window at. So no, it was not my intention. But it made me wonder about us as a human people, as a species. We need to make some changes, and we need to learn from what we've done in the past so we can make those changes. National Book Award finalist Kali Fajardo-Einstein is our guest, an interview recorded at the Tattered Cover Bookstore, where she launched her new novel, Woman of Light. At one point, her main character, Luz Lopez, describes herself as made of mountains. I asked Kali if that's also true of her. Do you feel made of mountains? Or yeah. Mountains? <laughs> I am not made of the ocean. <laughs> so when I lived in Key West or I lived in San Diego, like I love going out and being with the land and it would make me feel better when I, I deal a lot with depression. The ocean does not cut it for me. <laughs> like, and I remember being a little girl, every Memorial Day weekend, we would drive up with my family to Breckenridge. And when we were driving up to the mountains, I remember looking out and just imagining that my arm extended all the way into the mountain. And I was like, I was hugging it the whole way up. 
And is nature the antidote to depression for you? Or oh, part, part yeah. Of it? Yeah, definitely. And um, writing and reading other work and poetry and good music. <laughs> it is lovely to read a book that features uh, Werfano, Animas, Antonito. They serve as a backdrop to this novel. So do the Pueblos of northern New Mexico. I've often heard of the long-established families there. We didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. I know you spent some time in Antonito writing Woman of Light. I think you might have finished the draft there. How important is it for you to feel connected to the land, the place you're writing about? It's extremely important. So if you've read any of my work, you know that I'm a very sense-based writer. So one of the things I'm trying to do with my work is fully immerse my readers in a world. And I found when I was in my 20s and I was trying to write this book and I was struggling with different jobs and bad bosses and I was living all over the country, it was extremely difficult to write about Colorado while being in a McDonald's in Key West using the free Wi-Fi. Like, it was just really hard. <laughs> um, so the land, when I finished the draft in Antonito, I mean, I could go out and I could walk every day and look at the sunflowers and look at the old graveyard and I could go talk to somebody at the store and I could hear the sound of the voice, the old accent that my elders had that I don't have anymore. Um, and so being connected to those spaces, it really changed um, the way I work and I write. Interesting, you said an accent I don't have anymore. So you, you used to have it? I mean, when I say we and I say I, I usually mean we, like my ancestors. So oh. there's a collective um, inside of me. And that's a, I actually find myself doing that a lot. Yeah, the collective I. Yeah. You and those who came before. Let's talk more about Maria Josie, Luz, and Diego's aunt. They share a cramped apartment on Denver's west side. And as you write... Maria Josie prefers the company of women, though she didn't state this out loud. And I noticed that one of your chapters is called Women Without Men. And that is not just a reference to Maria Josie, is it? It's also a reference to a Murakami um, book, <laughs> a short story. Um, so in that chapter, Diego has been run out of town. He's been brutally attacked. The women are alone. Luce um, is working as a laundress. Maria Josie works in a mirror factory, so she's always coming home and she's really cut up and she's got scrapes on her knuckles and she's running salves over them and trying to heal herself. But they don't have any heat in that chapter and the land, they've been paying their rent, they've been doing everything they're supposed to do, but the landlord's not taking care of the furnace. And in that moment, Maria Josie is trying to fix the furnace and she's really struggling with it. And... Lou says, I wish Diego was here. You know, she says, I wish we had a man here who could do this. And Maria Josie's like, he couldn't charm a furnace back together to save his life because all he does is charm snakes. Like, <laughs> he's not going to be able to fix this. Um, and I, it just reminded me a lot of the women in my life. Um, I mentioned my godmother, Joanna Lucero. She worked as an electrician, normally would be reserved as masculine roles. And so I grew up seeing women in gender roles that were not necessarily... Um, what we would think of is that's a woman's job. I, I had no concept of that women could only do certain kinds of jobs. How do you think that influenced your own path and your own sense of yourself? Oh, it's definitely, um, 
there was a lot of, I remember being in my early 20s right out of college and people would always ask me when I was planning to get married and have children. And that's really big in my community and my culture and a lot of communities and cultures. And I, I would always say, I, I want to be a novelist and I got to have my novels first. But I don't think if I had stood strong in that path, um, I don't know if I would have been able to. But I hope that um, there's, you can do both. Like, I, w I hope that women would be able to make enough money to be able to be a novelist, also have the children they want. But that, that path wasn't there for me at that point. I want to ask you about two symbols, and you've evoked them both. Maria Josie works at a mirror factory. And, of course, there's the snake charmer. I think of those as quite symbolic. Do you? Does the mirror represent something for Maria yeah. Josie? <laughs> so in my work, there's often these very pronounced symbols, but I don't plan on them being symbols. So I just sort of write, and then I realize, oh, well, my Aunt Mary did work at a mirror factory because, well, she worked at a furniture factory building mirrors because I heard an oral history tape with my great-grandma that that is something that happened. So when I was writing Maria Josie and she had this job and Luce is going to the mirror factory and she's looking at herself in all the mirrors and Luce is all just cut up in the mirror reflections. Then when you go back and you revise, you look at that and you say, ah, that's a metaphor, you know? <laughs> like, oh, wow, I'm so smart. <laughs> um, but when I initially write, I don't guide you know, the creative spirit that pushes me to, to write, I don't sit there and ask for symbols. They just show up and then I go and I refine them later. And they reveal themselves to you. Yes. yes. That's remarkable. Yeah. You mentioned that Luz begins as a laundress in Denver, uh, but with help from a family friend, she becomes an assistant to a young attorney named David. Mm -hmm. What perspective does that give her on Denver in the 1930s? It's huge. So Luce is going from being somewhat an uneducated, and I don't mean that as an insult about Luce at all. She hasn't had the opportunities to be educated, just like many of our ancestors did not have that opportunity. But she needs this job, and you find out that maybe David's family owes Luce's family big time. There's a secret, and Luce saw it in one of her visions. So when she goes to work for this Greek-American attorney, she's suddenly thrust into a new class, She's seeing people that have degrees from Harvard and Yale, they're attorneys and judges, and they're coming through the doors of the office. She's also seeing things like insurance notes. She's seeing maps that have to do with redlining. Um, and Luce is incredibly smart. So even though she doesn't have a formal education, she's picking up on this really quickly. Um, and when she goes to work for David, she actually goes into the courts with him. And so there's a scene downtown, they go into a courtroom, and it's the first time Luce has ever been, been in court. I, I think we can say that David is on a mission. What is his mission as an attorney? David's on a number of missions. One is just sleeping with everybody. But <laughs> <laughs> um, the second mission is that he's really committed to social justice. And so in their community, a young man named Estevan has been brutally murdered by the police. And the Denver Police Department has covered it up. And they said that Estevan simply fell to his death. He did not fall. He was pushed after he had been beaten. Um, he was pushed from a rail bridge. So David is trying to hold the police department accountable. And so Luce is also learning about the fact that really violent, vicious things have happened. But there might be a way to have some recourse about that. 
Is there hope inherent in that storyline? I think that this book is hopeful. All of my work will always be hopeful. I'm not going to ever write books that are just pessimistic. That's just not in my soul. Um, but I do want people to really reflect on the fact that this is a police brutality case. It's the 1930s. I researched these. This has been happening since we've had a police force. You mentioned earlier that you deal with depression and that writing is a way to cope with that. Is that why you won't write hopeless stories? I think so. I think there's a lot of sadness in this world. Um, every day we're inundated with sadness. Our lives are filled with sadness. The people we love will die. We will die. You know, like very bad, heavy things. And I'm not trying to write books that are going to make you feel bad about yourself. At the end of the day, I want my books to make you feel stronger and better. What do you still struggle with in writing? What gives you a hard time? I wish I could write books for you once a year. <laughs> um, I'm slow because I'm so meticulous. And I, I know that Sabrina Karina came out three years ago, and now here we are, and I got this full-blown novel. But this novel took a lot of years, over a decade. In the future, I think I've learned some tricks. I think I've learned to be a little bit more disciplined. And my life is set up now so I can be a full-time writer. Um, so I'm hoping that I can get quicker um, with my books. Okay, you talked about discipline. Was that just a function of time? Just not having enough time? No, I have very severe ADHD, and, um, like a lot of people. And it's, it's just difficult for me to sit and do something over and over again for a huge block of time mm -hmm. and then do it every day for 10 years, okay? <laughs> so it's hard for me, and I had to really learn how to work with my own brain. And I've taught, I've been an educator, I will be teaching at Texas State um, in coming this fall. And I'm really looking forward to working with atypical learners because I am one myself. What's a trick you learned? One of the tricks I learned is to get up and go for a walk when I'm starting to feel really antsy. And I play a song like on repeat that like brings me back into my novel. So there's a lot of Patsy Cline that goes into my work. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, when Luce is feeling pretty sad about something that's going on with one of her lovers, um, I'll put on like, she's got you or something, but play it over and over and over again. And then I have to go back and work. So there's only so many times you can listen to a song before you're actually bored again. <laughs> But it occurs to me that these are tools you can impart to students mm -hmm. and make them feel less, well, like another, Yes. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. that's one of my goals as an educator. I mean, my own English teacher in high school told me to drop out, and I did drop out, and I got a GED because of that. I was able to go on. Um, I have a master's degree, but I also dropped out of my first master's program. And I used to be really ashamed of this. I used to try to hide the fact that I had a GED, that I was a two-time dropout. I'm not ashamed anymore because it wasn't, it wasn't all my fault. Sure, I could have worked harder, I guess, but maybe my teachers could have like found some other culturally relevant ways to work with me um, that would have helped me. And if you're a teacher, like, I love you. You're doing great work. So. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to like diss on teachers. We know it's been hard on teachers. <laughs> yeah, love you. Not you, other teachers. <laughs> you know, that really resonates with me because I had a teacher in high school who said I couldn't write. And um, I think there's a part of me that wants her to run across my name on the internet and then, <laughs> you know, just have a little bit of pain, just a little. <laughs> Do you feel that, like schadenfreude? 
Um, well, I did do something. Um, so <laughs> thanks to my dad suggesting this, um, when Spring and Karina first was published, my papa told me, um, you have to go and give a copy to your English teacher that told you to drop out. And I said, So, <laughs> so I signed it and I delivered it to her house and I put it in the mailbox and I said, thanks for telling me to drop out of high school. I'm an author now. <laughs> and then I took a picture of it and I put it on the internet. And then people were like fighting with me, like how dare you talk to an educator like that and like unfriending me and I was like, whatever. And then I came home and told my dad, I'm like, there's backlash. And he's like, I didn't tell you to do the second step, which was... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Did she ever circle back? No, but maybe I'll go drop off Women of Light later today. I don't know. <laughs> My heart is racing at that story. <laughs> in this book, you uh, sometimes invoke Tiwa, which is an indigenous language of northern New Mexico. Um, did you learn about it writing this book, or did you go in with a fair amount of knowledge of Tiwa? No, and I also don't have a fair amount of knowledge of Spanish because we lost it due to all the forced assimilation. But because my ancestors, um, our records indicate that they came off several pueblos in northern New Mexico, yeah. they were not speaking Spanish. Then they weren't speaking English. They would have been speaking Tiwa and Tewa. Um, and so you'll notice that in my books, I actually don't use other languages. I just code and say, and then he said in Tiwa, then she said in Greek, then he said in Spanish. And that's actually a way for me to be respectful to those languages. I'm not a linguist. Mm. I also struggled with trying to learn Spanish. Um, I actually know more than I think I do. Uh, I visited a friend in Puerto Rico, and she and the Uber driver were having a really funny conversation, and I could laugh. So, <laughs> I, so I actually do know more than I think, but I'm not going to ever butcher languages that I don't fully possess, and that's why you'll see me just doing a code switch um, in my work, and it's very purposeful. But it's also an elegant way of acknowledging other languages yeah. with, without having to be the linguist. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of interesting. So with the audiobook, the producer originally wanted to have everyone have accents. Every single person who's like speaking, when I say they're saying something in Greek or they're saying something in Tiwa, um, and I said, no, I don't want any accents. Think of this as like Tolstoy. Like, just read it in just a neutral tone, and I want the audience to put their own accent on if they want to. But I'm not trying to other my characters, and I think oftentimes when we watch Wild West movies or old westerns, anytime you have a Mexican character, they have this accent, right? And I'm like, they're speaking Spanish in reality, so they wouldn't have that accent in English, so it's oh. an artifice. Um, and so I'm trying to take out that artificial layer. Was there resistance to that request about the audiobook? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, there was, because I think it's in fashion. I think it's it's been in fashion for a long time to switch into different dialects and accents. And uh, my friend, Melina Bobadilla, she's an actress. She was on the show Hentified um, and many other shows. She's the one who narrates the audiobook. And she actually has a master's in ethnic studies, and she's a Chicana, and so she was like fighting with the producer and being like, no, we're not gonna do it like that. Kali doesn't want that, you know, and really respecting my wishes. But in my career so far, there are a lot of times where I've had to say, no, I don't want to exotify these characters. I don't want them to be othered anymore. They're just natural beings. 
And that's really the most radical thing about my books is that this is just the subjectivity of people. Do you imagine the reader as you're writing? Do you imagine a, no. I don't because honestly, like my ideal reader is the little collie who is depressed and being told to drop out of high school. And I love the fact that so many of you resonate and read my books and you enjoy them. And I think you would have liked little collie. <laughs> I think you would have been friends with her. Um, but I think if I thought of the wants and needs of audience, it would change the way that I write. And sometimes, you know, even I as a reader, sometimes I want things from authors that maybe it's not the best thing for me. Maybe I need to struggle a little bit with some of these authors' choices before I know what I really do want. How many of you have ever uh, read a book and you hated it the first time, but then you came to it 10 years later or something and all of a sudden it's the best book you've ever read? Yeah. Um, if that author had catered to the readership, that experience wouldn't happen. What does little Kali need when you're writing for her? She needs to be able to go into a bookstore and there are literally hundreds and thousands of books with characters who look like her, who sound like her, who have names like her from many different authors. The final part of our discussion with Denver novelist Kali Fajardo-Anstein after a break. We'll take questions from the audience at the Tattered Cover, an audience that was very grateful to see themselves in her characters and plot lines. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. ¿Quién somos nosotras? Who are we? During our lunch break, we'd be sitting outside, like, peeling mangoes and eating them fresh. And then I'd go inside to, like, dance these Afro-Brazilian, Afro-Caribbean style movements. I think that's when I most felt myself. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for Quién Are We everywhere you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now, the final part of my conversation with Denver novelist Kali Fajardo-Anstein. She launched her book at the Tattered Cover, and we got to be there, along with an audience of her readers. Let's take questions from them now about her new novel, Woman of Light, a story that spans generations of a Hispanic and indigenous family in both southern Colorado and metro Denver. It's something of a follow-up to her previous collection of short stories, Sabrina and Karina. Hi, my name is Lauren Granado. I'm from Denver, Colorado, born and raised. Thank you, Kali, for everything that you've given our community. So you talk about forced assimilation, and I really identify with that, especially in Denver, Colorado. Reading your books is such a process of reclamation, and I'm just wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on that for folks our age, whose families have gone through that process and lost so many of our traditions and not only indigenous, but things from the traditions of our families that haven't been passed down. What are your thoughts there and what other kind of healing processes have you gone through that would be similar to someone like me reading your books? Yeah, thank you so much, first of all, for your question and like opening yourself up like that and sharing that. I think about the loss every day. So my elders are here and they're not gonna be here forever. And when they go, that's a lot more loss. Um, and so I don't know how to make tortillas. I know how to make enchiladas, like, pretty good. And, but I, I'm, like, always sad that I don't know how to make tortillas. And the other day when I was over at my godmother's house, she actually pulled out all these handwritten recipes. 
from like her brothers and her, you know, her mom and things like that. And one of them was for tortillas. And so I talked to my little sister who is like a great chef. And I said, okay, I want to get together one weekend and we're going to learn how to make these together. And that way I can pass that down to my children or my nieces and nephews and that kind of thing. So just because we've lost something doesn't mean that we can't reclaim it in other ways. And I know some people would say, you're not allowed in this space, you don't have that, you don't know this. And that's just not the truth. Like we're always constantly in the process of building new traditions. So what I would say is just work on small ways that you can build new traditions. And like, let's say your great grandma or your grandma never did that thing, that's okay. Maybe somebody she knew did it or maybe the neighbor did it, but it can still be part of your traditions and whatever speaks to you, you're allowed to take those and carry those with you. Hi, my name is Joan Banco. I have to thank my daughter for bringing me here. It's opening a whole new world. But I did want to say that a long time ago, I went to a wedding reception in Antonito. And I remember walking around outside, because I was kind of bored of the party, and <laughs> wondering where I was. I felt like, how did you describe that part of the country, the, the lost? It's called the lost territory in my book. Yeah, And I, I felt that, and I kind of forgot that whole experience until you brought it up. Oh. So I'm kind of feeling like a loop oh, cool. has attached, because I remember walking around and thinking, where am I? I want to know more about where I am. And now I know how to find out more about where I was. <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> well, just, just to follow up, I'm, thank you for raising that, because I Googled the lost territory, just to see... Are there hits? Was I unaware that this is the name of that part of Southern Colorado and Northern New Mexico? Talk about naming it the Lost Territory. Yeah, so I... Because I, that's, that's you. Yeah, it's yeah. me. But I, when I was doing research, I came across in... Um, there's a book that talks about the, um, the people from Southern Colorado, Hispanos. If you just go Google that book, you'll find it. And I came across, inside of that book, there was just one little mention. Somebody, an academic, had just rushed over the term the lost territory. But it, they meant, like, literally, like, we had lost the territory to the United States. Um, but when I read it, I was like, ooh, it's like the lost world, you know, like that TV show and, like, the dinosaurs. And I was like, ooh, like, this is a really cool thing to name a place. And, and so I ran with it, and it really did fit sort of in the novel, The Lost Territory is much more magical, too. Mm. Like, a lot of things are going on that are just sort of inexplicable. And if you notice, when um, Pedre and Simodicia, they get off the train to go back to Pedre's Pueblo, which is also, it's, it's a fictional title. It's not based on a real Pueblo. The clocks are all broken at the train station. And all of those little mentions of time being distorted, those are all on purpose to give that feeling of lostness in the, that region of Colorado. Is this a book of magical realism, do you think? I, I, if that's going to sell copies, it's <laughs> magic realism, baby. <laughs> um, so practical. Yeah, so practical. Um, yeah, you don't get to the top doing nothing. Okay. So, <laughs> now, I, I would not call this magic realism myself because, to me, this was just realism. Like, I grew up with people that had, like, psychic phenomenon. Like, they were like, I, my arm is, like, violently hurting. Oh, my husband has just fallen and he's in the hospital for hurting his arm. Like, those are things that happened that were very, very normal in my family. 
So when people do call this magical realism, I'd say, yeah, but to me it is realism. My father brought this up that Luce is a mystic. I just never thought of that. Like, this is also a book of mysticism in some ways. So yeah, it's magical, it's mystical, it's also real. It's just real life in some ways. <laughs> Hi, Nancy Vieira, I'm from Hi, Aurora. Nancy. Hi. <laughs> Um, as one of your just number one fans, I know there's a lot of us here, um, <laughs> what are you currently reading? Well, I, <laughs> I am not reading anything right now because I have just been signing thousands of books. Um, so I just read the new Mieko Kawakami, All the Lovers in the Night. I don't know if you've read it already. I love Mieko's work so much, and we got to have a conversation together. She's Japanese, and we actually got to have an interpreter do a conversation. There's also a, a writer named Akil Kumarasari, um, and her new novel, Meet Me by the Roaring Sea, is just astounding. I just blurbed it. Um, I think it's going to win prizes. I think it's going to be a big deal. It's just such heavy craft. And I'm also going to recommend a bestseller that is on the list right now, and that's Emma Straub's This Time Tomorrow. It's so funny. It's about this 40-year-old woman who gets drunk and wakes up and she's suddenly 16 and she's like in her 16-year-old body. And I was just like reading it in public and I was like, ah, ha, 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 ha. you know, and then I was like, ah, ha, ha, ha. you know, I was like, you just go through all the emotions while you read it. So those are some good ones to check out. <laughs> Hi, my name is Eddie Young from Denver. And I, one of the things I loved about Sabrina and Karina was the subtle connections between characters and one character would show up in a later story. And I was wondering if you're kind of building this universe in that in Woman of Light, if any mm -hmm. of the characters show up from Sabrina and Karina, or these are mm -hmm. the ancestors of specific characters from Sabrina and Karina and how you sort of see the world you're creating, growing and building. That's a very, that's a very smart question. Yes, I am building a fictional universe. This is not Marvel, it's the Kali Fajardo universe. Kali <laughs> <laughs> Fajardo Einstein universe. Uh, so Sewarita, my fictional town in Sabrina and Krina, there is a whole chapter set in that town. It's the same town. And when I was working on this novel, I always knew that these were sort of the great grandmothers of Sabrina. These are, I mean, yeah, Sabrina lives in my Auntie Lucy's house when she goes and visits her grandma on Galapago Street. That is loose in the future. So yeah, this is all one big fictional universe and I do have ideas for a novel that would be set in sort of the 70s to the 90s because I'm really fascinated with that time period as well. How, how does it feel to have like such an astute question from someone who's clearly read your book? Like that's, that's <laughs> is that, I'm just curious what it feels like to be an author whose book has been read. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you guys are like my friends like it's like the coolest thing in the world like I get recognized sometimes like I didn't even know this could happen like when I was a little girl I was like I want to become an author people are going to recognize me at bars like that's <laughs> it's not what you want to have happen but um, <laughs> no it's um it's such an incredible honor and it means so much to me because a lot of Sabrina and Karina, if you remember, if you were there in the beginning, you'll know that that book came out to just media silence. There were no reviews. Um, you, you had me on, though. I didn't have Ryan silence. Um, there was no reviews. There was no national attention. And readers, readers in Denver and the Southwest and California and Texas, they carried that book and they brought it up to the National Book Awards. You did that. 
Hi, I'm Cal Duran, artist and educator. Um, I just was curious what inspired the title. I do a lot, as a native of Colorado I, and an artist, I do a lot of channeling. My ancestors and the Tewa show up a lot. And just seeing how being an artist, we channel that trauma and how we transmute that trauma into light. Yeah. And just wondering like what inspired the title. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Cal, for that question. So growing up, my Auntie Lucy, like I told you, she was the matriarch. She just had such a big presence. And I was really curious about her name. And I was curious about her name in different languages as well. So Luce, you know, Luce comes from the word lie, but Lucifer, I always thought Lucifer was a really interesting figure. Um, there's a point in this novel where Simodicia tells Mickey he should not model himself after the fallen angel because he was really jealous. And I think about how Lucifer, you know, was filled with light. He was the light bringer, essentially. And so there's a lot going on with the push-pull between good and evil in this book. So a lot of that really does come from just being absorbed in this sort of community and culture. All right. So my name is Rebecca Diaz for Many Horses. I am originally from Denver and now Lafayette. And I'm an English teacher. <laughs> one of the good ones, though. One of the good ones, yeah. I try, I try. So thank you so much first for writing books where I feel like my family history is seen. And I want to ask, um, we teach all BIPOC authors in our ninth grade freshman class. And I want to know what books or short stories would you love for our students to be reading next year? Oh, that's such a great question. I always, one of my go-tos that I don't think, it's old now, but it's classic, is Lost in the City by Edward P. Jones. And Edward P. Jones writes about black Americans in Washington, D.C. And that was sort of what initially sparked the idea that I could write from this perspective of Denver that's hyper-focused um, on my own community. Another book that I always want everybody to know about and everyone to read, and if you've, you are a fan of mine, you probably have heard this a thousand times, is The Rain God by Arturo Islas. Uh, he is a queer Chicano. He passed away from AIDS in, in the early 90s, but he was the first Chicano to ever get a publishing contract from a New York City publisher, from a major publisher. I would suggest that the kids pick up some new books, um, some newer ones. So there's a good one that just came out by a University of Wyoming MFA classmate of mine named Jenny, and I'm not going to pronounce her last name correctly, so I'm not going to say it on here. But the book is Four Treasures of the Sky, but those are some three to start with, um, and I think those would be good ones to check out for your students. Kali, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan, and thank you, everybody who joined us here at Tattered Cover, and thank you, Tattered Cover. Author Kali Fajardo Anstein of Denver. Her new novel is Woman of Light. By the way, she'll be at the Boulder Bookstore Monday night. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to these luminaries. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. 
and I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Rebecca Romberg. You're with CPR News and KRCC.